if you've noticed, uh, and some of you are new to Living Truth, perhaps, we have taken a break from two of the books we've been teaching. On Wednesday nights, we've been teaching Malachi. We've taken a break from that. On Sunday mornings, we've been teaching through Exodus, and we've also taken a break as we've done some Advent messages. Advent means the coming or arrival, specifically of the Messiah. And the theme has been good news of great joy throughout all these messages. This is not a typical Christmas text, but you will see the relevance of it as we talk about the good news of the gospel and us preaching that good news, uh, especially this time of the year. So I was out and about a little bit today, and I guess mask mandates have returned to California, and um, you know whatever you may think of, of masks and whether or not they do anything or not, the one of several downsides, and I'm not going to go there in terms of run, running down my list, I will just tell you, one thing that it does do is dehumanize people. Because you can't see people's faces. And it's, it's a bit of a bummer, really, uh, not to be able to see people's faces and reactions and so forth. Um, I, I don't know what the science in terms of the cases in California, maybe you guys know more. I've almost stopped paying attention to be quite candid because I'm not sure this is about science anymore. I think this is more about politics and power. Um, but... I'm sure there's probably some well-meaning people somewhere that are coming up with whatever is mandated in certain states uh, of the union. But I will say this time of year, I do look for opportunities to preach the gospel and share the good news. I had one earlier today, but don't let anything stop you. It doesn't really matter what may be going on. In fact, uh, people may be so sick and tired of being sick and tired out there that they might be even a little bit more open. Amen. Uh, and so earlier today, I was somewhere just shopping, and I just said to a, a young man, do you go to church? And he said, honestly, it's been a while. And I said, "Here's uh, I'm one of the pastors at this church. Why don't you come visit us? It can be just that simple. So just look for opportunities to share the good news. Uh, this is the good news that was preached by Philip. And before we go there, would you pray with me one more time? Father, thank you for your word living and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. May it uh, go deep into our hearts and do your divine surgery on us, Father, because we want to be more like Jesus in all that we do and all that we say. So would you equip us tonight to be ambassadors of the good news of the message of Jesus Christ? In his holy name I pray and all God's people said, amen. Acts 8, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now, Philip was one of the Hellenistic Jews that was chosen in Acts chapter 6. If you want to flip back there for a second, look at verse 5. The apostles had said that we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, but there was other ministry to be done, namely here the feeding of the widows. And so the statement found approval with the whole congregation, and they chose Stephen, Acts 6, 5, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. And there's Philip. And then you have some others who are named there. Um, they prayed. They laid their hands on them. So this is a type of commissioning, Acts 6, 6. And the word of God kept spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem and so forth. So this is a... Uh, one of the early 
deacons. Some people say that they were the first group of deacons, whether or not that's the case. They were serving the church, and Philip was one of them. And he was a good man, and he had a good reputation, and he just didn't serve as a deacon. He actually went out preaching the gospel. But what got him out preaching the gospel is something interesting. Stephen, who was one of those that was commissioned to be in that deacon-type ministry in Acts chapter 7, begins to preach a radical message to the religious leadership. And he says in Acts 7.51, take a look, he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, you are always resisting the Holy Spirit, Acts 7.51, you are doing just as your fathers did. And he had gone through really the history of Israel in the sermon. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You have received the law as ordained by angels, yet you did not keep it. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the quick. Acts 7, 54, they began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven, saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now we know Jesus sat down at the right hand of God because his work was finished, but here he is pictured as standing, probably in approval of Stephen. And he said, behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man, that's Jesus, standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and covered their ears and they rushed upon him with one impulse. When they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. Now, falling asleep here is another way to describe death. Stephen preaches the gospel, radically uh, confronts the Jewish uh, religious leadership here. They're cut to the heart. They gnash their teeth. They rush at him with one impulse. They kill him. But as he is being killed, he says, I see Jesus as if he's standing to receive me into heaven. And indeed, he was. And then he says, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Because to be absent from the body is to be at home with the Lord. And that's precisely what's happening here. And then, get this, as he's being killed by these men and hated for his sermon, he asks that the Lord doesn't hold the sin against them. Now, I don't know what you would be doing at a moment like that. Like, I think I'd be picking the rocks up and throwing them back at the people that were throwing them at me. But the key to this whole thing is to see a man filled with the Holy Spirit, a man who had become like his Lord. And so Stephen is martyred, and he's really the first martyr of the church. But Stephen's blood left an imprint on a young man named Saul. And for those of you who have done any study of the Bible, this young man named Saul becomes the Apostle Paul who writes two-thirds of the New Testament letters 
and radically preaches the gospel all over the Roman world at the expense of everything that he was. He was called into service. And many believe that the blood of Stephen was the seed that the Lord planted in Saul's heart. But we also see the witness of Stephen impacting this man who God would use. Now, God does not stop them from killing Stephen. And that's a question mark that many of us might have. Why, Lord, do you allow Stephen to die and Saul to be called in this kind of context? What is that all about? And all I can say is God has his ways and he allows what he allows. And so here's what happens. Saul ate one of Acts, was in hearty agreement with putting him to death. And Saul would always have that on his conscience and heart. And on that day, a great persecution arose against the church in Jerusalem. They were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Some devout men buried Stephen, made loud lamentation over him. But Saul began ravaging the church, entering house after house, dragging off men and women. He would put them in prison. Therefore, those who had been scattered went about preaching the word. And Philip went down to the city of Samaria and began proclaiming Christ to them. Now, what got Philip moving was persecution. In fact, the death of Stephen catapulted the church into fulfilling a mission that Jesus had laid out in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Judea, Jerusalem, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. And so now Philip goes down to a place called Samaria. Now, most of you know, if you study the Bible for any time, that the Jews and the Samaritans were not having tea together regularly. Amen? They hated each other. There was a, a uh, uh, hatred in terms of who they were and how they thought about each other. And here's what happened with the Samaritans. When the Assyrians came in and conquered the northern kingdom and destroyed that area in about 722 B.C., they, the Assyrians allowed, some of the Jews did stay there, and other people groups were planted in the northern part of Israel. They intermarried with the Jews that were left there. And they, in that in those intermarriages, they became known as the Samaritans. Remember, Samaria was the capital of the northern kingdom. So that's how the, the phrase, the Samaritans, comes to be. But they intermarried with non-Jews. So Jews that were pure, that is, had a Jewish mother and a father, looked down on the Samaritans because they were mixed. They were not pure Jews. When Paul runs through his resume in Philippians 3, he says, I'm a Hebrew of the Hebrews. I was circumcised on the eighth day. And what he's basically saying is, I had a Jewish mama and a Jewish daddy. But the Samaritans did not have that. They had built an alternate temple and had a different place to worship and so forth. So the Jews in Jerusalem basically hated the Samaritans and vice versa. 
And they would even avoid walking through their land as not to get the dirt of Samaria on their shoes or the dirt of the Samaritans on their shoes. There was an ancient hatred between these groups. And so because of that, for Philip to go down to Samaria was a big step. But Jesus had done some ministry also here and seeds had been planted here. And now one of his servants, Philip, would go down to Samaria and he would be proclaiming Christ to them. And so this Hellenistic Jew takes a major step. And if you're interested, by about 670 BC, uh, according to a prophecy in the book of Isaiah, foreign colonists were settled in Israel by the Assyrian kings. Their intermarriage with a few Israelites who had not been deported resulted in the Samaritans. And it did mark the end of Ephraim as a separate nation or the northern kingdom. And part of the problem with how the Jews saw the Samaritans was they were a syncretistic group. So they had embraced all kinds of different religious uh, movements, if you will, or belief systems and kind of amalgamated them into one. And so that's why uh, the Jews really despised them. They had no dealings with Samaritans and so forth. If you want to see Jesus' ministry in Samaria, you can look at John chapter 4. A popular prayer in that day was, Lord, don't remember the Samaritans in the resurrection, close quote. <laughs> when you raise people from the dead on the day of the resurrection, forget about the Samaritans. Now, I hope you don't pray that way, right? I hope you don't have you know, a few people at the bottom of the list that you're like, and if you decide to leave them out, Lord, I wouldn't mind if they're not in heaven when I get there. We better check our heart if we're praying like that. And so Jesus Christ said you would bear witness in these areas, even to the people of Samaria. And so Philip went. And the multitudes, Acts 8, 6, with one accord were giving attention to what was said by Philip as they heard and saw the signs which he was performing. For in the case of many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out of them, shouting with a loud voice, and many who had been paralyzed and lame were healed. Now, you can see that as Philip goes and begins to preach the gospel, signs and wonders are occurring. And verse 7 tells us that many who had unclean spirits, they were coming out and they were shouting. Now, we know that Jesus uh, did this kind of ministry, right? He would cast out demonic spirits out of many different people. And Philip had the same power. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you will be my witness. And the Lord allowed miracles to pave the way for the preaching of the gospel. And I will tell you that when God moves in this way, when Jesus did miracles in his earthly ministry, they were often parables to get a deeper spiritual point home. And here, Philip is able to do miracles by God's power to set people free, to get their attention, and to free people, but also to pave the way for the gospel. And I want you to see what happened. There was much rejoicing in that city, a revival broke out in Samaria. The people were rejoicing. There was great joy in the city, much celebration. Many people 
just on fire and thankful to God for what God was doing. Imagine just being one of those people. Imagine being lame for a number of years and being touched by the power of Jesus Christ with a word. Imagine being a person who was under demonic attack and even possession, being set free as one prayed over you. And uh, all of a sudden, something that had been a terrible malady in your life was lifted from you. This is what Jesus does, because he's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus sets people free. Do you believe that? The gospel sets people free from the ultimate dilemmas of sin and death and judgment. And that's why we preach the good news. That's why this season is all about the fact that God visited us, that God, Emmanuel, God with us, came, entered into our pain, lived the perfect life that we could never live, died on the cross as the perfect atoning sacrifice, rose from the dead because it was impossible for death to hold him. He's the archegos. He's the prince of life. Death can't hold the prince of life. Death can't hold the author of life, amen? Amen. And so Jesus rose, and this was the message in the book of Acts. He's alive, he's still saving, he's still delivering, and I am his ambassador. And so the Great Commission was being carried out, and the city rejoiced. Now, there was a certain man named Simon, now he's contrasted here with Philip, who formerly was practicing magic, or if you have a New King James NIV, it says sorcery, in the city, so in the same place, and he was astonishing the people of Samaria, claiming to be someone great. Now you get the first panel is Philip's ministry there in Samaria, and all of a sudden now we find out about a man who was also astonishing people, but what was he doing? He was practicing magic. The Greek word here is uh, synonymous with sorcery. And this is the practice of magical arts. This is not sleight of hand, what's called prestidigitation, where someone just woos you with, you know, how they get you looking over here and then they can pull a card out or do whatever. That's not what this is. This is some sort of demonic sorcery. And this city had been under this man's influence. I want you to think about this. Just think about the impact of one person. Philip comes in the power of the Holy Spirit, and a whole city is revived. A man practices sorcery by another spirit, by demonic power, if you will, and the whole city is under his spell. That's probably why so many people were possessed. That's probably why the city was downtrodden. They were impressed by Simon, but he was a sorcerer. He was a man who practiced magic in the, in the sense of sorcery. Nahum 3.4 says, All because of the many harlotries of the harlot, harlot the charming one, the, mystery, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations by her harlotries and families by her sorceries. And the Lord says, I am against you. If you begin to investigate this idea of sorcery in the Bible, it has, uh, the Hebrew word is, uh, one of the words is kashap. And it means to practice magic or sorcery, to enchant, to use witchcraft, magical arts, and the like. 
And this is condemned over and over in the Bible. In fact, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, if you're taking notes, God says, I don't want you practicing what these nations practice. I don't want sorcery. I don't want you doing any of this stuff. You can write down Deuteronomy 18, right around verses 9 and following. Don't learn to practice the abominable things that they do. I don't want you doing that. Now, here's the question. Why are people enamored with something called the occult? You might ask, what does the word the occult mean? The occult, an O before the word two C's, is not like the cults like Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. The occult has to do with things that are occluded. What does that mean? It means that people use different uh, symbols or rituals to get behind the veil. Something that's occluded is something that's uh, removed from us. And in, in order to get past the veil, sorcery is used, divination is used to divine insights. And if you look at a classic definition of sorcery, it's to gather information or even power, and it's about the past, the present, in the future. And so there, you know, there can be a psychic, there can be a palm reader, there can be a hotline that you can call, or there can be people who mess around with different objects to, from scrying to Ouija boards to crystal balls to astrology. Uh, the Enneagram right now has become popular in the Christian church. The Enneagram is allegedly a personality test but it is much more than that. And it has origins in the occult. So there are churches, even in our own area, and maybe some of you have participated in this, who are touting the Enneagram so that you can find out more information about your personality number, and it's a numbering system, basically, so that you can get more insight into how God can change your life. Uh, wait a minute now. We don't need the Enneagram to identify what number we are to figure out what we need. The Word of God is sufficient to point out the problems that I have, the issues that I have, and how to fix them. Amen? And we certainly don't need something that has occult origins and associations. So I'm not beating up on anybody who's been exposed to this, but I will tell you, the Enneagram, you can just chuck it. You don't need it because what you need is biblical revelation, the word of God, not something that comes from occult origins. Be a good time for an amen right now. Amen. You don't need it. And I don't understand why uh, spiritual leaders believe that this is something that should be touted to the people of God. But Simon had a hold on the people. And from the smallest to the greatest, uh, he was impressing many, many people in the city, and he was having uh, a great impact. And so this is becoming, you know, people are enamored with the, the dark side of things. You can think of movies right now or different ways that people, you know, kind of link to this. And I will just tell you, there is something that fascinates us, something about the occult that is, that, that is just fascinating, dark things, weird things. We, we tend to be a, a little bit like, hmm, 
Uh, you know, and there's these shows, these ghost hunter shows and all of that stuff. And I, I don't even know about all that stuff. But I will tell you this. People are just, they're a bit enamored with this stuff. And Dr. Martin, who wrote the classic book, The Kingdom of the Cults, way back in the day, asked the question, why do you think people are enamored with the occult? with the forbidden things that God says don't mess with it. And he said, essentially, he believed it was because people were looking for power or ways to control their own reality. And this is the promise of the occult. The promise of the occult is giving you a formula or an incantation or, you know, something where you can control your environment and you can experience a power But it is a dark power. And having witnessed it personally myself, close up and trying to pray for people who were dealing with that power, I will tell you, quoting Walter Martin once again, who ran into several situations of demonic possession, he said, I wouldn't cross the street to go mess with something like that. He said, I just found myself involved in these things and and praying for people that they would be delivered. But I wouldn't cross the street to deal with it. Only if I was called upon, if you know what I'm saying. And this is what was going on in Samaria through Simon. Simon had become a channel for the occult, for the dark power. But he was impressive. And these people who, let's just say that if they have something legitimate going on, they have some sort of insight or they know something about you that no one could have known, you know If they are getting accurate information, it is not from God. So let me just ask you, is that what you want? Do you want information from some sort of dark power instead of just trusting God for your future? Well, uh, Simon, uh, notice verse 10, they all from the smallest to the greatest were giving attention to him. He was taking attention away from God and it was on him. And they said, this man is what is called the great power of God. This man has power from the least of them to the greatest of them. If you want to know where power is found, this man, Simon, is the great power of God. This is where the game Simon Says comes from. I'm pretty sure. I had that in my notes. And I, don't, I didn't put a smiley face next to it, so I don't know if that's legitimate or not. But this idea of the great power was a Samaritan designation for the supreme deity and that Simon had declared that this deity had come to earth in his person, get this, for the redemption of men and women. Simon, claimed to be a redeemer. Not only was he impressive with the signs that he did, but he claimed to embody the deity. Now, not the God of the Bible. And he claimed to be the answer to people's dilemmas. And so he was drawing people away from the true God and drawing them to himself. Justin Martyr, an early church father, Uh, who himself came from Samaria, described a Samaritan Simon who did mighty acts of magic, so he was considered a god with a small g, 
and was worshipped not only by almost all the Samaritans, but even by some in Rome who erected a statue in his honor. Towards the end of the second century, Irenaeus represented him, Simon, both as, a glor- as glorified by man, as if he were a god, and as the author of all sorts of heresies, Gustav Dahlmann believed that he claimed to be God Almighty. By the third century, Simon had become seen as the originator of Gnosticism and the arch enemy of the Apostle Peter. Now, this, of course, we don't know for sure. We can't argue dogmatically that Simon, this Simon, is the father of Gnosticism, and many of you have learned about Gnosticism as we've gone through different books of the Bible. But Gnosticism was a false movement, and it may well be that this Simon was the one who instigated it. Much more I could say to you about uh, the occult, but I will just tell you that drugs are often involved in the occult. Drugs often become a doorway to the devil. So people who mess with Hallucinogenics, mind-altering drugs, open up themselves to the dark world of pornography and the like, are opening themselves up to the devil. You can take it to the bank that the devil is in the middle of all of this darkness. Exploitation, manipulation, it is his game. He absolutely loves it because he's imprisoned many a soul through these kinds of things, brethren. And that's why the Lord says, stay away from it. That's not where you belong. And so they were giving him attention because he had long, for a long time, astonished them with his magical arts. And he was divining and doing his thing, maybe telling people about the future, maybe uh, doing different things with objects and the like. But when they believed Philip there in Samaria, Acts 8, 12, preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, and notice that was his message. See, what we preach is not just a fire insurance policy to get you into heaven. We preach the good news, note it in your Bible, about the kingdom of God. The, the, what we preach is we preach a king and a kingdom, brethren, not just hey, I said the sinner's prayer, walk down the aisle, set it at a camp, and I'll put this in my pocket and then go live like I want to live. No. We preach the kingdom of God. When you receive Jesus as your Lord, Lord, a synonym for Lord is king. Jesus becomes your king. You are now part of his kingdom, and now you are about building up his kingdom, those within it, and trying to bring those outside of it into it. Everybody with me? This is what the message is. You preach the kingdom of God. Jesus said, if my kingdom were of this world, my disciples would be fighting, but my kingdom right now is not of this realm. Jesus is King of kings and Lord of lords. And when he comes in his second coming, all kings will step aside for the king of all kings. Amen? And the Lord of all lords. That is the one in whom you have trusted. 
And one day he will rule and reign from Jerusalem. And we will be in his kingdom. We will be a kingdom of priests to our God. Amen? And there will be a golden age. This is what we look forward to. And in the meantime, we preach the kingdom. We say, get your ticket. The train is coming. Jump on board. The price has been paid. But there's still something to do. Just because you get saved, that's the first step. And of course, it's the most important step. But after that, you start working for the king in the kingdom. Amen? Christianity is not a spectator sport. We serve the king. And what we do is in service of the king. And he is worthy of our best because the king came down to save us. And so there's Philip preaching the good news of the kingdom of God, the name of Jesus Christ. And notice they were being baptized, men and women alike. We just had a baptism of a little eight-year-old on Sunday. Wasn't that cool for those of you who were here? And even notice Simon himself believed. There's going to be a little bit of a head-scratcher. And after being baptized, he continued on with Philip as he observed the signs and great miracles taking place. He was constantly amazed. Now, why was Simon so amazed? Maybe because he saw a different type of power. Maybe because half of what he was doing or more was faking people out. I don't know for sure. But he followed Philip around. He opened his, himself up, confessed Christ, got baptized, etc. And he was amazed. What are we to make of Simon, it's saying, believing and getting baptized? Well, I'm going to just leave that for a second as we move down the text. But I will tell you, Jesus told a parable of the sower or the soils. And he said the sower sows the seed. And he, when he describes the parable, he says the seed is the word of God or the gospel of the kingdom. And the seed goes out and he described four different types of soil. Do you remember? And only one of the soils produced ongoing, abundant, abiding fruit. The other three did not. Only one soil was good, and Jesus said, the soil is your heart. Now, wherever you stand on the idea of how salvation works and all of that, here's the idea. The message of the gospel goes out, and it hits different types of soil. One of the soils, if you recollect, it springs up, and it looks good, but then the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and threats of persecution choke the word, and it becomes unprofitable or unfruitful. So certainly there are people who look like the real McCoy. There are tares in the wheat field. Remember, you have the parable of the wheat and the tares. So it's certainly possible, and certainly when I, when I say possible, I'm talking about the Bible indicates that this is so, that someone can look like the real McCoy. For example, Judas Iscariot. How many people were fooled by Judas? The disciples didn't even know that he was the betrayer. When the Lord said, one of you is going to betray me, they said, is it me? Is it me? Not it. And everybody didn't go, it's the guy. He's got horns coming. We knew it was him. There's horns coming out of his head. Everybody else has got halos. Judas did not. No, 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 no. Judas was a wonderful actor. 
but he wasn't converted. He was a devil from the beginning, Jesus said. It would have been better for Judas had he never been born. So whatever's going on with Simon, just hold that. Think of the parable of the sower. If you're interested, Matthew 13 is one of the texts that has the parable. Now, when the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent Peter and John. Now, there's two big disciples, big names, right? And two Jewish apostles, the inner circle of Jesus, and they come down. And they came down and prayed for them, that is the Samaritans, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. Here's more thick sledding. For he had not yet fallen upon any of them. Notice that the Holy Spirit is called he here. He's the third person of the Holy Trinity. He had not yet fallen upon any of them. They had simply been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now, the word fallen and upon here is just what we would expect it to be in Greek. To fall, to rush, press upon, and then to be upon someone. And so Peter and John come down to Samaria and they begin laying their hands on them and they were receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, what are we to make of this? Because it's, it would seem, and it's more than it would seem, here, here the people open their hearts, they get baptized, they believe, but they don't seem to have the Holy Spirit yet. What are we to make of this? And how long would it have taken for Peter and John to get word about Samaria and then make travel plans and then get there? I mean, days, weeks. So how about this interim period of time? What is going on with these people? Well, in, the, in Roman Catholicism, they, they take this text and basically argue that this is normative. This is the norm and that a person who grows up in the Roman Catholic Church uh, gets baptized as an infant, so they're protected in some sense through infant baptism. They make their first communion, and then at their confirmation, which is about when you're in eighth grade, you receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this is Catholic teaching. I personally went through this. I grew up Italian Roman Catholic, and so I made my first Holy Communion I was baptized as an infant, and then I made my confirmation in about eighth grade, and then my family stopped going to church. <laughs> He's good. He's got the spirit now. He got the spirit. Yeah. Uh-uh. Because from the ages of 14 to about 25, you would see no signs of the spirit in Michael Lance. You would see many signs of the flesh in Michael Lance. It was all about Michael. So whatever that process was, it didn't seal me. It didn't seal the deal for me. I ran roughshod right after that, early into high school, and bam, it was, I was gone. Now, I will tell you this. That foundation, I didn't forget. I feared God. I believed there was a God, but I was living for myself. I never stopped believing that there was a God, but I, I didn't live like I was accountable to him. And so, as they laid hands on them, our Pentecostal brethren say that this is also normative. So they would say that classic Pentecostal uh, teaching, 
or neo-Pentecostal or even some uh, charismatic Christians uh, both claim warrant for this passage from their belief that Christian initiation is in two stages. The second is the receiving of the Spirit, and it's accompanied by the laying on of hands, and some expressions would say it happens with the speaking of tongues. In the Episcopal Confirmation in the Anglican Prayer Book, 1928, it gives the same impression. In this case, it speaks of strengthening of the Holy Spirit, uh, those who he has already regenerated. Pentecostal churches together with some, but by no means all charismatics, also teach a two-stage initiation, but formulate it differently. To them, the first stage cons consists of conversion and regeneration, that is, being born again. And the second is baptism in or of the Spirit, often and not always associated with the laying on of hands by a Pentecostal leader. This baptism in the Holy Spirit, they would say, is followed by a supernatural utterance, i.e. the speaking of tongues. And uh, I will just tell you this. I don't think that the Roman Catholic position is accurate, nor do I hold the Pentecostal view, uh, because I don't think that this could be uh, argued that it's the normal experience for Christians as you read the rest of the New Testament. So what is this? Well, there are some charismatics, and we would fall into that uh, uh, range of charismatics where we would say, we still believe the spiritual gifts are for today. We're not cessationists, and I'm sorry for all the big words. We still believe that the gifts are for today. So what would we hold? Or how would a theologian in this camp describe what occurred? Well, they, some would say that this perhaps is conversion followed by some sort of empowering of the Spirit. So let me just talk just uh, in terms of experience, just for a second. This is not my main argument, but some of you got saved and you, you truly were born again, but you had a moment maybe in your Christian experience where you got prayed for, or maybe you were in private prayer, and all of a sudden something happened. Call it a divine empowering. Uh, call it if you will, a baptism of the Spirit. Uh, so some would hold that you get saved, but then there can be an empowering, but I would also argue that there could be multiple empowerings, not just one. And interestingly enough, someone as eminent as Calvin taught, he said, to sum up, since the Samaritans had the spirit of adoption, they were saved when Philip preached and they uh, responded, conferred on them already, says Calvin, the extraordinary graces of the Spirit are added as a culmination. What's Calvin saying? He believes that when Peter and John came, they got a second experience with the Holy Spirit. Uh, that is, they were already saved, but now they got empowered by the Spirit. Okay? Much like the apostles in the upper room waiting for the day of Pentecost. And then there's another view, hold by many evangelical scholars, that argue that this is a transitionary stage in church history and all that is happening is God allows for Peter and John to come down and lay hands on the Samaritans and delays their receipt of the Holy Spirit for purposes of unity in the church. This is not normative. It's simply transitional. And Peter and John come representing the Jewish 
part of the church. And when they lay hands on the new Samaritan believers, this is a way to bring the church together as one in the Lord. And it's simply a transitionary stage in church history. And it's not going to be repeated. And this is not the norm. Okay? There's the major views. More than you thought you would get tonight, right? (laughs) But that is how uh, theologians and different uh, movements within Christianity would uh, work through that. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was bestowed through the laying on of the apostles' hands, what did he do? He offered them money. Power had become Simon's narcotic. And he said, Give this authority to me as well, so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Now, when he saw, he was already astonished by Philip, but when he saw that Peter and John were praying for people, and they were, and I don't know what the manifestation was in terms of how it looked to people who were watching, but whatever was happening, Simon could see it, and he said, how much is it going to cost me to buy this power? Because I likes power. (laughs) Whether it's on the dark side or the light side, it doesn't matter. Power, power, power. Three easy payments of $99.99? What will it cost me to have this power so that I, when I pray on people, can bestow the power? And I don't have to tell you that there are men who dress in white suits and set up big crusades and claim to have the power. And only God knows who actually gets healed and who doesn't. But I will tell you that much of what you see in people being pushed on the forehead and going down and all of that is an act. And there are people who have borne testimony in parking lots, firsthand experiences with people I know personally who have told them, oh, is it time for act number two? I gotta gotta get my chair now and act like I'm crippled. It's sad. Some of you are familiar with Raul Reese and he said he was gonna check out whether this power was true. And he went to one of these meetings and he stood up in the front. And you know how many people are desperate for healing. And the faith healer was coming by and pushing on foreheads. And I think Rawl is like a 10th degree black belt. And he said, if the power is real, I'll go down. But if it's not, I'm not going down. And the evangelist pushed on his forehead and he knew it was funny. He goes, I'm not going down, man. I'm not going to do it. I'm not going down. And he said, the usher was pulling on his shirt and it was kind of like, I'm not going, I'm not going down. Now, I'm not saying that people couldn't fall down under the power of God, but I'm telling you that a lot of stuff is done for the sake of power, fame, and money. That's not of the Lord. And Peter said to Simon, may your money perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. May your silver perish with you. You have no part or portion in this matter. Your heart is not right before God. Now, remember how I told you we would pause because Simon, it says he believed and it says he got baptized. But now, and Peter's pretty good at looking into people's hearts. Ask Ananias and Sapphira if you get to meet them in a latter day, if they're in heaven. Peter's pretty good at this. And he says, may your money die with you. Your heart's not right. Therefore, repent of this wickedness of yours, 22, 
and pray the Lord that if possible, the intention of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness. You are full of bitterness and in the bondage of iniquity. Look at verse 23. Does that sound like a person set free by the gospel of Jesus Christ? I don't think so. I see, Peter says, that what is happening to you is about power and money and fame and that you are in prison to your sin. The son, if he sets you free, you will be free indeed. Now, it doesn't mean you're going to be over every sin that you dragged into that relationship, right? We all know that. But Peter looked and said, "Mm mm-mm. You need to repent, verse 22. And Simon said, there it is. (laughs) Simon said. Pray to the Lord for me yourselves so that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, what? what? Pray for me that nothing what you said comes upon me. You mean like you die with your money? Now, I would think if Simon were legit, he might say something like this. Oh, God, forgive me. I've dragged my love for power and the occult into this scenario with you, and you're different, and that's not what this is about. Please forgive me. I want to know you. Save my soul. None of that. Just pray for me that bad things don't happen to me. I've had a lot of people come to me with that kind of request. Hey, you seem to have a connection with the big guy upstairs. Could you keep stuff, bad stuff out of, out of my life? Anybody will take prayer for that, right? Can I pray for you? Now, a lot of us say this, and we know most people will not say, well, no, don't pray for me. I've had a few say that, though. No, don't pray for me, okay? I know how to pray for you now. But anyway, that's another story. But it seems that it's all about Simon. It's not about the Lord. It's not about other people. It's about him. Pray for me that nothing of what you said comes upon me. And so when they had solemnly testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they started back to Jerusalem and were preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. And I would imagine that we could repeat verse 8, and there was much rejoicing in that city. Father, thank you for your word. Much to glean here. We can see that we're going to encounter all kinds of different stuff when we're out preaching the gospel, but the gospel is the good news that Jesus Christ came on a saving mission, and he does save to the uttermost those who are perishing. And the good news is that the gospel is for the Jew and also for the Gentile and also for the Samaritan. It's for everybody. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever, Jew, Gentile, Samaritan, whoever believes in him will not perish. They will have everlasting life. Now that belief is more than the demons believing and trembling, or even Simon's apparent alleged belief. It's not assent to a set of facts. It's not intellectual agreement It is 
truly a change of heart, a change of kingdoms, and a change of kings. And Father, forgive us if we have not preached that as clearly as we should in our modern times. But here's the good news. The good news is that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. The gospel is not complicated. It just simply takes a broken, contrite, repentant heart to say, Lord, I've been serving a different king. My kingdom, I've been the king or I've served the prince of this world. Forgive me. I want to serve you. Would you pause in your heart just for a moment? Whether you're watching by live stream or you're here tonight. Do you know the king? Is he the king of your heart? Have you asked him to save you? Have you surrendered your life to him as your king and to his kingdom? Have you said, Lord, I will follow you. Be my shepherd. Father, thank you that we have moments like this. The most important thing we could do this Christmas season is make sure we, we know you as our king and we're following you. Would you help those who may not be sure, those who don't know you yet, to know the entrance payment has been paid in full. We don't earn it. We don't deserve it. We can't buy it with money as seen with Simon. It's a free gift. It's received by faith as a vehicle of your grace. Would you help us to open our hearts to it? And for those of us who already know you, to preach it. And as these moments close, if you're a prodigal and you've been away from the Lord. Maybe you would say, Simon represents me. I'm a phony. Well, repent of your sin and trust in Christ. If you're not sure if you died tonight, you'd be in heaven. Make sure. Lord Jesus, save me. Pray it. I'm sorry for my sin. Thank you for coming on that saving mission. Thank you for saving people like Saul, who became Paul. If you can save him, you can save me. Please forgive me. Restore me. Renew me and help me to follow you and extend your kingdom, Lord. Father, you know every heart, so I just pray that you would take the prayers of each heart and just do what only you can do. Do your mighty work for your glory. In Jesus' name and all God's people said.